These are extraordinary times, and uh, many people not able to get to Mass today. We're recording the homily so that um, we who, I, Father Connor, and the the staff here at at Newman and the missionaries, um, as we pray for those who cannot get to Mass, um, encourage them to be in solidarity, maybe with those who cannot get to Mass uh, throughout the world, except maybe a few times a year uh, because of a shortage of priests or... um, just uncertainty. Uh, I know I've felt in these last days that uh, as we're kind of self-quarantining and canceling public events, how, uh, how difficult it is to be uncertain about the future and really not knowing how long this will last and uh, what the future holds. And it seems like every day, certainly every week, uh, things become more serious and anxieties kind of mount and uh, also reminds me to be in solidarity with people throughout the world who, who live with that kind of uncertainty or even worse every single day, uh, places where governments are toppled and um, economies crash and shortages of, of necessary things happen. We just get a flavor of that when people kind of realize that we can't take things for granted. Um, but most especially the Eucharist, I think that this is uh, it's kind of a wake-up call to me and hopefully to, to us as Catholics uh, not to take it for granted that we can have Jesus in the Eucharist, that this is a great gift um, that he's given to us. And in a place where we are used to having things on demand, uh, it can be a little um, shocking, startling, and scary not to be able to receive Jesus uh, in the way that we're accustomed to. So I encourage those who cannot get to Mass today um, to make a spiritual communion, uh, to to know that Jesus is with them and uh, the spirit of their baptism, the Holy Spirit, which resides in every, the heart of every baptized, you can make a spiritual communion with the body of Christ. Um, and the body of Christ, although not visibly assembled, is uh, still real and still in the world, still in our country, in our city. Um, so we pray for each other. Um, these days have made me think about what is normal. You know, when something happens like a, a, a shooting where lots of people die, uh, it makes us it calls our attention to the violence that uh, is, is like so shocking when it's done in, in such a dramatic way. And it also sometimes, I think, makes us, it gets rid of our numbness to the violence that happens on a daily basis that doesn't make the news, that doesn't shock us, because we consider that normal. Um, so when people are starting to get sick or when a virus starts to spread among us and people's lives are in danger and and we're worried about healthcare systems and people getting the care that they need. Uh, I know for my part, it wakes me up to the fact that uh, people are dying every day of lots of diseases. Uh, people are getting sick. Um, but we kind of are used to that. That's normal. Um, but we as Christians know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. None of that is supposed to exist in God's plan. Um, that we were made for the fullness of life, eternal life, immortality, perfect relationships of unconditional love. Um, and sin has wormed its way into our lives. And, and the worst part about it is that we're used to it. We just kind of take that for granted, that things are this way. So these, the, the grace maybe in these moments is to realize that, this memento mori, um, that yeah, we all exist at every moment for death. Something is going to come and get us. And these moments when that, that anxiety kind of oppresses us, it can be salutary um, in that sense that we, 
we don't take life for granted um, and that we acknowledge that this world, there's no perfect happiness in this world that we can hope for. Um, and yet we hope. The Christian response to that, confrontation with sin and death, is actually hope. Um, St. Paul in the second reading today says, Brothers and sisters, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This hope is rooted in the love of Jesus, that we've seen how radically he loves us, even to the point of taking on, even becoming sin and death, so that we who die can become the righteousness of God and live in immortality and eternal life in the divine life of the Holy Trinity. I've been thinking a lot about um, Julian of Norwich, who has that famous quote, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Um, in times like this, you kind of, it's like a good fridge magnet. Like, don't worry. All shall be well. Everything's going to be good. I looked a little bit into her life. Um, she was uh, an anchoress, a, a nun that lived kind of as a recluse or in seclusion that was supported by the people in the town um, and just lived a life of contemplation and prayer in about the uh, late 1300s, early 1400s. So uh, right there in the Middle Ages, late Middle Ages. Um, and she lived through some pretty horrible things. Um, when she was six years old, the Black Death came through Norwich and killed um, like from a third to a half of the population of the entire city. And was next to London, the biggest city in England at the time. Um, and it wasn't just for those two years that the Black Death like killed all those people. It kept coming back every like 10 years and it, because people didn't really understand. I mean, they had some sense of how it spread, but um, thank God today we have so much more science and understanding of how viruses spread. And thank God this coronavirus is nothing close to as bad as the Black Death, the bubonic plague. But you can just imagine she's six years old and like everyone around her is dying. Later on in her life, um, there was the peasant rebellion where the people who worked in the fields, the peasants, rebelled against the powers that be. And there were all sorts of people that were killed in this uh, civil conflict. Later on, there was a religious conflict with this group called the Lollards, and the uh, governor king was against them and burned all sorts of people at the stake in the public square. It, this is like the worst of the Middle Ages. Like when you think about the movies, uh, people dying of plague, people being burned at the stake and tortured and rebellions of groups of peasants. It's like she lived through the thick of it, of sin and death, um, with none of the comforts that we have, uh, worldly comforts or only spiritual comforts. And when she was 30 years old, she was dying, uh, even to the point she, got, she received last rites. Uh, she was in extremis. And uh, in the moment that the priest who gave her last rites held the, the cross up to her face, the crucifix, she received a vision of blood coming out of the wounds of Christ on the cross, and Jesus appeared to her. And she later wrote down uh, these reflections, and that's where that quote comes from. Uh, these showings or, or visions that she received from Jesus. And she was cured. She came back about a week later and, and uh, then chose to enter the, uh, the life of an anchoress living in seclusion uh, and just living out a life of prayer. And, and her spiritual writings survive to this day, uh, one of the most important English uh, spiritual writers from the Middle Ages. But that, uh, in a time that was so harsh, 
both the life uh, that they lived, but also the spirituality, like (laughs) the kind of uh, holiness that people hungered for was that kind of like, go live in a cell in the cold and basically starve yourself until you die. That's what it means to be a saint. Um, she, her, the tenderness of her writing is so apparent. Um, she says this, that Jesus, uh, one of her, her revelations, from the time these things were first revealed, I had often wondered, wanted to know what was our Lord's meaning. It was more than 15 years after I was answered in my spirit's understanding. You would know our Lord's meaning in this thing? Know it well. Love was his meaning. Who showed it to you? Love. What did he show you? Love. Why did he show it? For love. Hold on to this, and you will know and understand love more and more, but you will not know or learn anything else ever. Love is what Julian experienced, and that's where she gets this sense that all shall be well, no matter what's going on around me, all shall be well. This uh, quote is also famously uh, used in T.S. Eliot's poem, The Little Gidding. Um, and in the section that he, he brings it up, Julian's quotes, he talks about a hedgerow of three hedges. And the first hedgerow uh, is attachment. The second is indifference. And the third is detachment. And he sees these, these two outer hedgerows of attachment and detachment to uh, things to people, to places, to self. Your attachment to those things and people um, is this lively hedge. It's got lots of life and vigor. And detachment is the same way. It's got life and vigor when you detach from yourself, from things, from places, from people. But in between is this kind of dead, rotting hedge of indifference. He says you have to pass over indifference. Um, He says this, um, for this is the use of memory, for liberation, not less of love, but expanding of love beyond desire, and so liberation from the future as well as the past. What he means by that is this, that when you're attached to the things of the world, when you're attached to your daily routine, the things that you uh, love, the people you love, um, there's, there's this love of those things, and when you can't have them, it makes you sad. It hurts not to have those people, those places, those routines, even the Eucharist. Right? But your response to that, when you start to lose those things, you sense you can either become indifferent and just say, like, well, I guess I shouldn't get my hopes up. I shouldn't want so much. And kind of fall into this acedia, this spiritual sloth, this lack of love. Or you can expand your love. You can let that love, the, the affection that you have for the familiar, the things that you can see, the things you've fallen in love with, the people you've fallen in love with, you can let that love expand because of the suffering, because of the loss, and grow into a detachment. That's Julian of Norwich, is that she doesn't go into a cell by herself because she hates the world or because the world's no good. It's because her love for the world has led her to love the other world, the world beyond and behind this world that gives this world its meaning and its purpose. So he says to us, Elliot, that sin is necessary. Death is necessary, meaning it's inevitable. These things happen. Our hearts are broken. The world goes crazy. But he says, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well, by the purification of the motive in the ground of our beseeching. By the purification of the motive in the ground of our beseeching, meaning our intention 
St. Augustine talks about this. Why do we pray? Why do we ask God for things? To grow our heart to want more, not less. I heard uh, a few people asking me, um, so does this mean I don't have to give up my things for Lent anymore? <laughs> like, now that uh, we're all quarantined and stuff, like, can I eat chocolate or watch TV or, or whatever? Um, I would venture to say that that's indifference. That's falling into acedia and saying, like, well, now that the, I can't have the things that I, I wanted, you know, like, what if, what if your Lenten resolution was go to daily Mass? Like, like obviously, that's not going to happen. So what, what are you going to do with that? Um, are you going to let it just kind of kill your desire, the thing that led you to want to do that in Lent, to grow in your desire for God? Or are you going to let this renunciation, this Lent that you didn't choose, grow your desire for God? That I think there's so many meanings of the woman at the well. Um, uh, I would encourage you to, to read and reread uh, the gospel for today, the, the story of Jesus meeting the woman at the well. But that is certainly one of them, that she has looked for love in this world. She looked for love in the familiar, and she is attached, and she's kind of at a breaking point because the world is disappointing her. She hasn't found love, at least the love that she's looking for. And Jesus meets her right in that moment and tells her about a water that will spring up even to eternal life, that will, she'll never thirst again. And she has a choice. Is she going to go after that love and in many ways leave behind the things that she has loved or tried to love and say just, just attach herself to this one thing, this one person? That's the question for all of us uh, in this Lent. And Easter's still going to come, even if we can't have a big Easter vigil or uh, our Holy Week. Who, who knows what's going to happen? We pray that, obviously, we can do those things. But um, nothing is certain, uh, at least in this world, but this, that we have this hope of eternal life. That what St. Paul says is true, that this glory of God, which is poured out to us in the Holy Spirit, that we can take for granted. Not in that it's owed to us, but that God has promised it that his love is unconditional. So let our distance from the Eucharist, from each other, from everyday routines and consolations and the things that we love in this world that give us comfort, um, let the lack of those things expand our love. Let us jump over the hedge of indifference from attachment to true detachment, spiritual detachment, that it can purify the ground of our beseeching to grow and to purify our motive, our intention, our true desire, and point it at the one person, the one love that can satisfy us.